The Reverend Wooing of Archibald The conversation in the bar parlor of the Angler's Rest, which always tends to get deepish toward closing time, had turned to the subject of the modern girl, and a gin and ginger ale sitting in the corner by the window remarked that it was strange how types die out. I can remember the days, said the gin and ginger ale, when every other girl you met stood about six feet two in her dancing shoes and had as many curves as the scenic railway. Now they are all five foot nothing and you can't see them sideways. Why is this? The draft stout shook his head. Nobody can say. It's the same with dogs. <laughs> One moment the world is full of pugs as far as the eye can reach. The next, not a pug in sight, only peaks and alsatians. Odd. The small brass and the double whiskey and splash admitted that these things were mysterious and supposed that we should never know the reason for them. Probably we were not meant to know. I cannot agree with you, gentlemen, said Mr. Molliner, with a rather abstracted air, but now he sat up alertly, prepared to deliver judgment. The reason for the disappearance of the dignified, queenly type of girl is surely obvious. It is nature's method of ensuring the continuance of the species. A world full of the sort of young woman that Meredith used to put in his novels and Du Maurier into his pictures in Punch would be a world full of permanent spinsters. The modern young man would never be able to summon up the nerve to propose to them. <laughs> Something in that, assented the draft stout. I speak with authority on the point, said Mr. Mulliner, because my nephew, Archibald, made me his confidant when he fell in love with Aurelia Camerley. He worshipped that girl with a fervor which threatened to unseat his reason, such as it was. <laughs> But the mere idea of asking her to be his wife gave him, he informed me, such a feeling of sick faintness that only by means of a very stiff brandy and soda, or some similar restorative, was he able to pull himself together on the occasions when he contemplated it. Had it not been for... But perhaps you would care to hear the story from the beginning. People who enjoyed a merely superficial acquaintance with my nephew Archibald, said Mr. Mulliner, were accustomed to set him down as just an ordinary pin-headed young man. It was only when they came to know him better that they discovered their mistake. Then they realized that his pin-headedness, so far from being ordinary, was exceptional. <laughs> <laughs> Even at the Drones Club, where the average of intellect is not high, it was often said of Archibald that had his brain been constructed of silk, he would have been hard put it to find sufficient material to make a canary a pair of cami knickers. He sauntered through life with a cheerful insouciance, and up to the age of twenty-five had only once been moved by anything in the nature of a really strong emotion on the occasion when, in the heart of Bond Street, and at the height of the London season, he discovered that his man, Meadows, had carelessly spent, sent him out with odd spats on. <laughs> and then he met Aurelia Camerley. The first encounter between these two has always seemed to me to bear an extraordinary resemblance 
to the famous meeting between the poet Dante and Beatrice Fortinari. Dante, if you remember, exchanged no remarks with Beatrice <laughs> on that occasion, nor did Archibald with Aurelia. Dante just goggled at the girl. <laughs> so did Archibald. <laughs> like Archibald, Dante loved at first sight, and the poet's age at that time was, we are told, nine, which was almost exactly the mental age of Archibald <laughs> Mulliner when he first set eyeglass on Aurelia Camerley. Only in the actual locale of the encounter do the two cases cease to be parallel. Dante, the story relates, was walking on the Ponte Vecchia while Archibald Mulliner was having a thoughtful cocktail in the window of the Drones Club looking out on Dover Street. And he had just relaxed his lower jaw in order to examine Dover Street more comfortably <laughs> when there swam into his line of vision something that looked like a Greek goddess. She came out of a shop opposite the club and stood on the pavement waiting for a taxi. And as he saw her standing there, love at first sight seemed to go all over Archibald Mulliner like nettle rash. <laughs> it was strange that this should have been so, for she was not at all the sort of girl with whom Archibald had fallen in love at first sight in the past. <clears throat> I chanced while in pick-up the other day to pick up a copy of one of the old yellowback novels of fifty years ago, the property, I believe, of Miss Postlethwaite, our courteous and erudite barmaid. Mm -hmm. It was entitled Sir Ralph's Secret, and its heroine, the Lady Elaine, was described as a superbly handsome girl, divinely tall, with a noble figure, the arched Montresor nose, haughty eyes beneath delicately penciled brows, and that indefinable air of aristocratic aloofness which marks the daughter of a hundred earls. And Aurelia Camerley might have been this formidable creature's double. <laughs> Yet Archibald, sighting her, reeled as if the cocktail he had just consumed had been his tenth instead of his first. Golly, said Archibald. <laughs> to save himself from falling, he had clutched at a passing fellow member, and now examining his catch, he saw that it was young Algy Windham Windham. Lost just the fellow member he would have preferred to clutch at, for Algy was a man who went everywhere and knew everybody, and could doubtless give him the information he desired. <clears throat> Algy, old Brune, said Archibald in a slow, throaty voice, a moment of your valuable time, if you don't mind. He paused, for he had perceived the need for caution. Algy was a notorious babbler, and it would be the height of rashness to give him an inkling of the passion which blazed within his breast. With a strong effort he donned the mask. When he spoke again, it was with a deceiving nonchalance. I was just wondering if you happen to know who that girl is uh, across the street there. I, I suppose you don't know what her name is in rough numbers. Yeah. Seems to me I've met her somewhere or something or seen her or something or, or something, if you know what I mean. Algy followed his pointing finger and was in time to observe Aurelia as she disappeared into the cab. That girl? Yes, said Archibald, yawning. Who is she, if any? <laughs> girl named Camerley. 
Oh, said Archibald, yawning again. <laughs> then I haven't met her. Interesting, sure, if you like, she's sure to be at Ascot. Look out for us there. Archibald yawned for the third time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, he said. I'll try to remember. Tell me about her. I mean, has she any fathers or mothers or any rot of that description? <laughs> Only an aunt. She lives with her in Park Street. She's potty. Archibald started, stung to the quick. Potty, that divine, uh, I mean, uh, that rather attractive-looking girl. Not Aurelia, the aunt. She thinks Bacon wrote Shakespeare. <laughs> thinks who wrote what? <laughs> Asked Archibald, puzzled, for the names were strange to him. <laughs> you must have heard of Shakespeare. He's well-known. Fellow who used to write plays. Only Aurelia's aunt says he didn't. She maintains that a bloke called Bacon wrote them for him. Well, dash decent of him, said Archibald approvingly. <laughs> of course, he may have owed Shakespeare money. There's that, of course. What was the name again? Bacon. Bacon, said Archibald, jotting it down on his cuff. All right. Algy moved on, and Archibald, his soul bubbling within him like a rare Welsh rarebit, at the height of its fever, sank into a chair and stared sightlessly at the ceiling. Then, rising, he went off to the Burlington Arcade to buy socks. The process of buying socks eased for a while the turmoil that ran riot in Archibald's veins. But even socks with lavender clocks can only alleviate. They do not cure. <laughs> Returning to his rooms, he found this anguish rather more overwhelming than ever, for at last he had leisure to think, and thinking always hurt his head. <laughs> Algy's careless words had confirmed his worst suspicions. A girl with an aunt who knew all about Shakespeare and Bacon must of necessity live in a mental atmosphere into which a lame-brained bird like himself could scarcely hope to soar. Even if he did meet her, even... If he asked him to call, even if in due time their relations became positively cordial, what then? How could he aspire to such a goddess? What had he to offer her? Money? Plenty of that, yes, but what was money? Socks? <laughs> of these he had the finest collection in London. <clears throat> but socks are not everything. A loving heart? A fat lot of use that was. No, a girl like Aurelia Camerley would, he felt, demand from the man who aspired to her hand something in the nature of gifts, of accomplishments. He would have to be a man who did things. And what, Archibald asked himself, could he do? Absolutely nothing except give a, an imitation of a hen laying an egg. <laughs> that he could do. At imitating a hen laying an egg, he was admittedly a master. His fame in that one respect had spread all over the west end of London. Others abide our question, thou art free, was the verdict of London's gilded youth, Archibald Mulliner, when considered purely in the light of a man who could imitate a hen laying an egg. Mulliner, they said to one another, may be a pretty minus quality in many ways, but he can imitate a hen laying an egg. 
and so far from helping him. This one accomplishment of his would, reason told him, be a positive handicap. A girl like Aurelia Camerley would simply be sickened by such coarse buffoonery. He blushed at the very thought of her ever learning that he was capable of sinking to such depths. And so, when some weeks later he was introduced to her in the paddock at Ascot, and she, gazing at him with what seemed to his sensitive mind contemptuous loathing, <laughs> said, uh, They tell me you give an imitation of a hen laying an egg, Mr. Molyneux. He replied with extraordinary vehemence, It's a lie, a foul and contemptible lie, which I shall track to its source and nail to the counter. Brave words, but had they clicked? Had she believed him? He trusted so, but her haughty eyes were very penetrating. She seemed to pierce through to the depths of his soul and lay it bare for what it was, the soul of a hen imitator. <laughs> However, she did ask him to call, with a sort of queenly, bored disdain, and only after he had asked her twice if he might... But she did do it, and Archibald resolved that no matter what the mental strain, he would show her that her first impression of him had been erroneous, that trivial and vapid though he might seem, there were in his nature deeps whose existence she had not suspected. For a young man who had been superannuated from Eton and believed everything he read in the racing expert's column in the morning paper, Archibald, I am bound to admit, exhibited in this crisis a sagacity for which few of his intimates would have given him credit. It may be that love stimulates the mind, or it may be that when the moment comes, blood will tell. Archibald, you must remember, was, after all, a Mulliner. And now the old canny strain of the Mulliners came out in him. Meadows, my man, he said to Meadows, his man, <coughs> Sir, said Meadows, it appears, said Archibald, that there was or is or something a cove of the name of Shakespeare. Also a second cove of the name of Bacon. Bacon wrote plays, it seems, and Shakespeare went and put his own name on the program and copped the credit. <laughs> Indeed, sir. Oh, if true, not right, Meadows. Far from it, sir. Very well, then. I wish you to go into this matter carefully. Kindly pop out and get me a book or two bearing on the business. He had planned his campaign with infinite cunning. He knew that before anything could be done in the direction of winning the heart of Aurelia Camerley, he must first establish himself solidly with the aunt. He must court the aunt, ingratiate himself with her, always, of course, making it clear from the start that she was not the one. And if reading about Shakespeare and Bacon could do it, he would, he told himself, have her eating out of his hand in a week. Meadows returned with a parcel of forbidding-looking books, and Archibald put in a fortnight of intensive study. Then, discarding the monocle, which had until then been his constant companion, and substituting for it a pair of horn-rimmed spectacles, which gave him something of the look of an earnest sheep. <laughs> he set out for Park Street to pay his first call. And within five minutes of his arrival, he had 
and declined the cigarette on the plea that he was a non-smoker and had managed to say some rather caustic things about the practice so prevalent among his contemporaries of drinking cocktails. Life, said Archibald, toying with his tea's cup, was surely given to us for some better purpose than the destruction of our brains and digestions with alcohol. Bacon, for instance, never took a cocktail in his life, and look at him! At this the aunt, who up till now had plainly been regarding him as just another of those unfortunate incidents, sprang to life. You admire Bacon, Mr. Mulder? she asked eagerly, and reaching out an arm like the tentacle of an octopus, she drew him into a corner and talked about cryptograms for 47 minutes by the drawing-room clock. <laughs> In short, to sum the thing up, my nephew Archibald, at his initial meeting with the only relative of the girl he loved, went like a shirocco. A mulliner is always a mulliner. Apply the acid test, and he will meet it. It was not long after this that he informed me that he had sown the good seed to such an extent that Aurelia's aunt had invited him to pay a long visit to her country home, Brosted Towers in Sussex. He was seated at the Savoy Bar when he told me this, rather feverishly putting himself outside his scotch and soda, and I was perplexed to note that his face was drawn and his eyes haggard. But you do not seem happy, my boy, I said. I'm not happy. But surely this should be an occasion for rejoicing, thrown together as you will be in the pleasant surroundings of a country house. You ought easily to find an opportunity of asking this girl to marry you. And a lot of good that will be, said Archibald moodily. Even if I do get a chance, I shan't be able to make any use of it. I wouldn't have the nerve. You don't seem to realize what it means to be in love with a girl like Aurelia. When I look into those clear, soulful eyes, or see that perfect profile bobbing about on the horizon, a sense of my unworthiness seems to slosh me amidships like some blunt instrument. My tongue gets entangled with my front teeth, and all I can do is stand there feeling like a piece of gorgonzola that has been condemned by the local sanitary inspector. <laughs> I'm going to Brosted Towers, yes, but I don't expect anything to come of it. I know exactly what's going to happen to me. I shall just buzz along through life, pining dumbly, and in the end slide into the tomb a blasted, blighted bachelor. Another whiskey, please, and Jolly will make it a double. <laughs> Brosted Towers, situated as it is in the pleasant weald of Sussex, stands some fifty miles from London, and Archibald, taking the trip easily in his car, arrived there in time to dress comfortably for dinner. It was only when he reached the drawing-room at eight o'clock that he discovered that the younger members of the house party had gone off in a body to dine and dance at a hospitable neighbor's, leaving him to waste the evening tie of a lifetime to the composition of which he had devoted no less than twenty-two minutes on Aurelia's aunt. Dinner, in these circumstances, could hardly hope to be an unmixedly exhilarating function. Among the things which helped to differentiate it from a Babylonian orgy, 
was the fact that in deference to his known prejudices, no wine was served at Archibald. <laughs> and lacking artificial stimulus, he found the aunt even harder to endure philosophically than ever. Archibald had long since come to a definite decision that what this woman needed was a fluid ounce of weed killer, <laughs> scientifically administered. With a good deal of adroitness, he contrived to head her off from her favorite topic during the meal. But after the coffee had been disposed of, she threw off all restraint, scooping him up and bearing him off into the recesses of the West Wing. She wedged him into a corner of a settee and began to tell him all about the remarkable discovery which had been made by applying the plain cipher to Milton's well-known epitaph on Shakespeare. The one beginning, what needs my Shakespeare for his honored bones, said the aunt. Oh, that one, said Archibald. <laughs> what needs my Shakespeare for his honored bones? The rapier of an age is piled in stones. Oh, that has hallowed relics should be hid under a starry-pointed pyramid, said the aunt. Archibald, who was not good at riddles, said he didn't know. <laughs> As in the plays and sonnets, said the aunt, we substitute the name equivalents of the figure totals. We do what? <laughs> substitute the name equivalents of the figure totals. The which? The figure totals. All right, said Archibald, let it go. I dare say you know best. <laughs> the aunt inflated her lungs. These figure totals, she said, are always taken out in pl the plain cipher. A equaling 1 to Z equals 24. The names are counted in the same way. A capital letter with the figures <coughs> indicates an occasional variation in the name count. For instance, A equals 27, B 28, until K equals 10 is reached when K instead of 10 becomes 1, <laughs> and T instead of 19 is 1, and R or reverse, and so on, until A equals 24 is reached. The short or single digit is not used here. <laughs> Reading the epitaph in the light of this chapter, it becomes, quote, What needs Verulam for Shakespeare? Francis Bacon, England's king, be hid under a W. Shakespeare. William Shakespeare, fame, what need, needs Francis Tudor? Tudor, king of England, Francis, Francis W. Shakespeare. For Francis thy William Shakespeare hath England's king, took W. Shakespeare. Then thou, out, W. Shakespeare, Francis Tudor, bereaving Francis Bacon Tudor, Francis, such a tomb, William Shakespeare. <laughs> the speech to which he had been listening <clears throat> was unlu unusually lucid and simple for a Baconian. Yet Archibald, his eye catching a battle axe that hung on the wall, could not but stifle a wistful sigh. How simple it would have been, not, had he not been a mulliner and a gentleman, to remove the weapon from its hook, spit on his hands and haul off, and dot this doddering old ruin one just above the imitation pearl necklace. Placing his twitching hands underneath him and sitting on them, he stayed where he was until, just as the clock on the mantelpiece chimed, the hour of midnight, a merciful fit of hiccups on the part of his hoku, hostess enabled him to retire. As she reached the 27th hick, 
His fingers touched the door handle, and a moment later he was outside streaking up the stairs. The room they had given Archibald was at the end of a corridor, a pleasant, airy apartment with French windows opening upon a broad balcony. At any other time he would have found it agreeable to hop out onto this balcony and revel in the scenes and sounds of the summer night, thinking the while long, lingering thoughts of Aurelia. But what with all that Francis Tudor, Francis Bacon, and such a tomb William Shakespeare count seventeen, drop one knit pearl <laughs> and set them in the, up in the other alley stuff, not even thoughts of Aurelia could keep him from his bed. Moodily tearing off his clothes and donning his pajamas, Archibald Moliner climbed in and instantaneously discovered that the bed was an apple pie bed. You know what that means, don't you? An apple pie bed is when the bottom sheet is turned over to look like you've got a top sheet, but you put your feet in and you can't get through. That's... When and how it had happened, he did not know. But at a point during the day, some loving hand had sewn up the sheet, two hairbrushes and a branch of some prickly shrub between them. Himself from early boyhood, an adept at the construction of booby traps, Archibald, had his frame of mind been sunnier, would doubtless have greeted this really extremely sound effort with a cheery laugh. <laughs> As it was... Weighed down with Verulams and Francis Tudors, he swore for a while with considerable fervor, then he tripping off the sheets and tossing the prickly shrub wearily into a corner, crawled between the sheets and was soon asleep. His last waking thought was that if the aunt hoped to catch him on the morrow, she would have to be considerably quicker on her pins than her physique indicated. How long Archibald slept, he could not have said. He woke some hours later with a vague feeling that a thunderstorm of unusual violence had broken out in his immediate neighborhood. But this, he realized, that the mists of slumber cleared away was an error. The noise which had disturbed him was not thunder, but the sound of someone snoring. Snoring like the dickens! <laughs> The walls seemed to be vibrating like the deck of an ocean liner. Archibald Muller might have had a tough evening with the aunt, but his spirit was not so completely broken as to make him lie supinely down beneath that snoring. The sound filled him as snoring fills every right-thinking man with a seething resentment and a passionate yearning for justice, and he climbed out of bed with the intention of taking the proper steps through the recognized channels. It is the custom nowadays to disparage the educational methods of the English public school and to maintain that they are not practical and of a kind to fit the growing boy for the problems of afterlife. But you do learn one thing at a public school, and that is how to act when somebody starts snoring. <laughs> You jolly well grab a cake of soap and pop in and stuff it down the blighter's throat. <laughs> <clears throat> and this Archibald proposed, God willing, to do. <clears throat> it was the work of a moment with him to dash to the warm stand and arm himself. Then he moved swiftly out through the French windows onto the balcony. The snoring, he had ascertained, proceeded from the next room.
Presumably this room also would have French windows, and, presumably, as the night was warm, these would be open. It would be a simple task to oil in, insert the soap, and buzz back undetected. <laughs> it was a lovely night, but Archibald paid no attention to it. Clasping his cake of soap, he crept on and and was pleased to discover on arriving outside the snorer's room that his surmise had been correct. The windows were open. Beyond them, screening the interior of the room, were heavy curtains, and he had just placed his hand upon them when from inside a voice spoke. At the same time, the light was turned on. "'Who's that?' said the voice. And it was as if Brosted Towers, with all its stabling, Outhouses and messuages had fallen on Archibald's head. A mist rose before his eyes. He gasped and tottered. The voice was that of Aurelia Camerley. <laughs> for an instant, for a single, long, sickening instant, I am compelled to admit that Archibald's love, deep as the sea though it was, definitely wobbled. <laughs> it had received a grievous blow. It was not simply the discovery that the girl he adored was a snorer that unmanned him. It was the thought that she could snore like that. <laughs> there was something about those snores that seemed to sin against his whole conception of womanly purity. <laughs> then he recovered, even though this girl's slumber was not, <laughs> as the poet so Milton so beautifully puts it, airy light. <laughs> but rather reminiscent of a lumber camp when the wood sewing was proceeding at its briskest he loved her still he had just reached this conclusion when a second voice spoke inside the room I say Aurelia it was the voice of another girl he perceived now that the question who's that had been addressed not to him but to this newcomer fumbling at the door handle. I say, Aurelia, said the girl complainingly, you've simply got to do something about that belly bulldog of yours. I can't possibly get to sleep with him snoring like that. He's making the plaster come down from the ceiling in my room. Oh, I'm sorry, said Aurelia. I've got so used to it that I don't notice. Well, I do. Put a green beige cloth over him or something. Out on the balcony, the moonlit balcony, Archibald stood shaking like a blancmange. Although he had contrived to maintain his great love practically intact, when he had supposed the snores to proceed from the girl he worshipped, it had been tough going and for an instant, as I have said, a very near thing. The relief that swept over him at the discovery that Aurelia could still justifiably remain on her pinnacle was so profound that it made him feel filleted. He seemed for a moment in a daze. Then he was brought out of the ether by hearing his name spoken. Did Archie Mulliner arrive tonight? asked Aurelia's friend. I suppose so, said Aurelia. He writhed that he was motoring down. Just between us girls, said Aurelia's friend. What do you think of that bird? To listen to a private conversation, especially a private conversation between two modern girls, when you never know what may come next, 
is rightly considered an action incompatible with the claim to be a gentleman. <clears throat> I regret to say, therefore, that Archibald, ignoring the fact that he belonged to a family whose code is as high as that of any in the land, instead of creeping away to his room, edged at this point a step closer to the curtains <laughs> and stood there with his ears flapping. It might be an ignoble thing to eavesdrop, but it was apparent that Aurelia Camerley was about to reveal her candid opinion of him and the prospect of getting the true facts, straight as it were from the horse's mouth, held him so fascinated that he could not move. Archibald Moliner, I said Aurelia meditatively, Yes, the betting at the junior lipstick is seven to two that you'll marry him. Why on earth? Well, people have noticed he's always round at your place, and they seem to think it's significant. Anyway, that's how the odds stood when I left London at seven to two. Get on the short end, said Aurelia earnestly, and you'll make a packet. Is that official? Absolutely, said Aurelia. Out of the moonlight. Archibald uttered a low, bleak moan, rather like the last bit of wind going out of a dying duck. <laughs> True, he had always told himself that he hadn't a chance, but however much a man may say that, he never in his heart really believes it. And now, from an authoritative sense, he had learned that his romance was definitely blue around the edges. It was a shattering blow. He wondered dully how the trains ran to the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> A spot of grizzly bear shooting seemed indicated. Inside the room, the other girl seemed perplexed. But you told me at Ascot, she said, just after he had been introduced to you, that you rather thought you had at last met your ideal. When did the good thing become unstuck? A silvery sigh came through the curtains. I did think so, then, said Aurelia wistfully. There was something about him. I liked the way his ears wiggled. And I had always heard he was such a perfectly genial, cheery, merry old soul. Algie Wimondham told me that his imitation of a hen laying in eggs was alone enough to keep any reasonable girl happy through a long married life. <laughs> Can he imitate a hen? No, it was nothing but an idle rumor. I asked him, and he stoutly denied that he had ever done such a thing in his life. He was quite stuffy about it. I felt a little uneasy then, and then the moment he started calling and hanging about the house, I knew that my fears had been well-founded. The man is beyond question a flat tire and a wet smack. As bad as that? I'm not exaggerating a bit. Where people ever got the idea that Archie Mulliner is a bonobus old bean beats me. He's the world's worst monkey wrench. He doesn't drink cockadales. He doesn't smoke cigarettes. And the thing he seems to enjoy most in the world is to sit for hours listening to the conversation of my aunt, who, as you know, is pure goof from the soles of her feet to the tortoiseshell comb, <laughs> and should long ago have been renting a padded cell in Earlswood. <laughs> Believe me, Muriel, if you can really get seven to two, you are on to the best thing since Buttercup won the Lincolnshire. Mm -hmm. You don't say. Mm -hmm. I do say. Apart from anything else, he's got a beastly habit of looking at me reverently. And if you knew how sick I am of being looked at reverently, <laughs> they will do it, these lads. 
I suppose it's because I'm rather an outsized and model on the lines of Cleopatra. Tough. <laughs> you bet it's tough. A girl can't help her appearance. I may look as if my ideal man was the hero of a Viennese operetta, but I don't feel that way. What I want is some good, sprightly sportsman who sets a neat booby trap and who will rush up and grab me in his arms and say to me, Aurelia, old girl, you're the bee's roller skates. <laughs> and Aurelia Camerly emitted another sigh. Talking of booby traps, said the other girl, if Archie Molliner has arrived, he's in the next room, isn't he? Oh, I suppose so. That's where he was to be. Why? And because I made him an apple pie bed. It was the right spirit, said Aurelia warmly. I wish I'd thought of it myself. Too late now. Yes, said Aurelia, but I'll tell you what I can and will do. You say you object to Lysander's snoring? Well, I'll go and pop him in at Archibald Milner's window. That'll give him pause for thought. <laughs> Splendid, agreed the girl Muriel. Well, good night. Good night, said Aurelia. There followed the sound of a door closing. There was, as I have indicated, not much of my nephew Archibald's mind, but what there was of it was now in a whirl. <laughs> he was stunned. Like every man who was abruptly called upon to revise his entire scheme of values, he felt as if he had been standing on the top of the Eiffel Tower and some practical joker had suddenly drawn it away from underneath him. Tottering back to his room, he replaced the cake of soap at its dish and sat on the bed to grapple with his amazing development. <laughs> Aurelia Camerly had compared herself to Cleopatra. It is not too much to say that my nephew Archibald's emotions at this juncture were very similar to what Mark Antony's would have been had Egypt's queen risen from her throne at his entry and, without a word of warning, started to dance the black bottom. He was roused from his thoughts by the sound of a light footstep on the balcony outside. At the same moment he heard a low, woofly gruffle, the unmistakable note of a bulldog of regular habits who has been jerked out of his basket in the small hours and forced to take the night air. <laughs> She is coming, my own, my sweet, were it never so airy a tread. My heart would hear her and beat, were it earth in an earthly bed, whispered Archibald's soul, or uh, words to that effect. <laughs> he rose from his seat and paused for an instant, irresolute. Then inspiration descended on him. He knew what to do, and he did it. Yes, gentlemen, in that supreme crisis of his life, with his whole fate hanging, as you might say, in the balance, Archibald, showing for almost the first time in his career a well-nigh human intelligence, <laughs> began to give his celebrated imitation of a hen laying an egg. Archibald's imitation of a hen laying an egg was conceived on broad and sympathetic lines. Less violent than Val Salvini's Otello, it had in it something of the poignant wistfulness of Mrs. Siddons in the sleepwalking scene of Macbeth. <laughs> the rendition started quietly, almost inaudibly, 
with a sort of soft liquid crooning. The joyful yet half-incredulous murmur of a mother who can scarcely believe as yet that her union has really been blessed and that it is in, indeed she who is responsible for that oval mixture of chalk and albumen which she sees lying beside her in the straw. <laughs> then, gradually, conviction comes. It looks like an egg, one seems to hear her say. It feels like an egg. It's shaped like an egg. Dammy, it is an egg! And at that old doubting uh, resolve, the crooning changes, takes on a firmer note, soars into the upper register, and finally swells into a maternal peon of joy, a chirok, 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 chirok of such a caliber that few had ever been able to listen to it dry-eyed. <laughs> Following which, it was Archibald's custom to run round the room, flapping the sides of his coat, and then leaping onto a sofa or some convenient chair to stand there with his arms at right angles, crowing himself purple in the face. <laughs> All these things he had done many a time for the idle entertainment of fellow members in the smoking room of the drones, but never with the gusto, the brio, with which he performed them now. Essentially a modest man, like all the Mulliners. <laughs> he was compelled, nevertheless, to recognize that tonight he was surpassing himself. Every artist knows when the authentic divine fire is within him. <laughs> And an inner voice told Archibald that he was at the top of his form and giving the performance of a lifetime. Love thrilled through every that he uttered, animated each flap of his arms. Indeed, so deeply did love drive in its spur that he tells me that instead of the customary once, he actually made the circle of the room three times before coming to rest on top of the chest of drawers. <coughs> When at length he did so, he glanced towards the window and saw through the curtains. The loveliest face in the world was peering, and in Aurelia's glorious eyes there was a look he had never seen before, the sort of look Eisler or uh, somebody like that beholds in the eyes of the front row as he lowers his violin and brushes his forehead with the back of his hand. <laughs> a look of worship. There was a long silence. Then she spoke. Do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and Archibald did it again. He did it four times and could, he tells me if he had pleased, have taken a fifth encore or at any rate a couple of bows. And then leaping lightly to the floor, he advanced toward her. He felt conquering, dominant. It was his hour. He reached out and clasped her in his arms. Aurelia, old girl, said Archibald Mulliner in a clear, thin, firm voice. You are the bee's roller skates. <laughs> At that she seemed to raise into his embrace. Her lovely face was raised to his. Archibald, she whispered. There was another throbbing silence broken only the, by the beating of two hearts and the wheezing of the bulldog. <laughs> who seemed to suffer a great deal in his bronchial tubes. <laughs> then Aurelia released her. 
Well, that's that, he said. Glad everything's all settled and totsy-totsy. Gosh, I wish I had a cigarette. This is the sort of moment a bloke needs one. She looked at him, surprised. I thought you didn't smoke. Oh, yes, I do. And do you drink as well? Oh, quite as well, said Archibald. <laughs> In fact, rather better. <laughs> oh, by the way, yes, there's just one other thing. Suppose that aunt of yours wants to come and visit us when we are settled down in our little nest. What, dearest, would be your reaction to the scheme of socking her on the base of the skull with a stuffed eel skin? I should like it, said Aurelia warmly, above all things. <laughs> Twin souls, cried Archibald, that's what we are. When you come right down to it, I suspected it all along, and now I know. Two jolly old twin souls. He embraced her ardently. And now, he said, let us pop downstairs and put this bulldog in the butler's pantry, where he will come upon him unexpectedly in the morning and <laughs> doubtless get a shock which will do him as much good as a week at the seaside. <laughs> Are you on? I am, whispered Ardelia. Oh, I am. And hand in hand, they wandered out together onto the broad staircase. <laughs> <laughs>